0: This is the CMS Colloquium podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. I'm Henry Jenkins.
1: Uh, this is my my privilege to introduce the final uh, CMS colloquium for this academic year. I'm delighted to see such a great turnout at this point in the semester. Um, we're very honored to have uh, Ralph Baer with us. Uh, Ralph Baer has been described as the father of the video game, uh, and I think his talk will help us to understand all of the various claims uh, behind that, uh, but certainly, you know, pong uh the odyssey the 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 light gun all owe something to his work as well as simon uh the 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 matching game that many of us played uh some, some you know years ago so it's really phenomenally exciting to have him here uh recently he was presented by uh, President Bush with uh, the, a, a national award for his contributions to engineering um and i'm I've lost my note about what the name of your award is. All right, I'll let you, I'll let you tell the story. But anyway, uh, my, my eyes are getting crossed up here. So anyway, I'm delighted to turn it over to him. He's gonna share some of his memories and experiences, and then we'll open it up to everyone for questions. Okay, hey, thank you, Andrew.
0: <laughs> you want that? Yeah. Let's see, I'm a business, I guess. Well, uh, if you don't mind, uh, I'll alternate between walking and sitting. I am 87 years old, and, uh, and I had a nasty case of sciatica about five weeks ago, so I'm still dragging this this leg, and, and I also have no voice, as you can tell. <clears throat> you can hear me, I assume. Okay. Uh, well, before we go into the reason why I get invited, which is the video game business, which occupies a uh, the spectrum of my life is about this wide compared to the rest of my life. Uh, I uh, might mention that uh, I've been around for a long time, uh, I've done electronic engineering since before. It was called electronic when I was, so I was 16, which makes it about, what, 70 70 years. I'm old enough to have been uh, interviewed for a job by Lee DeForest, who's the guy who put the grid in the vacuum tube in 1906. (laughs) A (laughs) couple of Yeah. He was a director in a small school I went to after World War II when I got out of the army. Uh, I uh, went to school on the GI Bill in Chicago. And one of the directors was uh, the Forrest. And I got called to his office once. uh, My first first brush with a celebrity. And what he wanted to do was to find someone to work with him. Uh, to get back into the uh, diathermy business. Now, who the hell knows what diathermy is? Diathermy was very popular before World War II and after World War II for about 10 years. It's a matter of applying about 100 watts of RF on a kilo, kilo megahertz, so they about either capacitively with large electrodes on your body or with an induction coil to heat up your inlets to promote healing. I mean, I mean, how do you promote healing? You raise the temperature of blood, right? Make, dilate the blood vessels and it worked. There's just one little problem with it in terms of modern medical uh, medical practice. Can you imagine a doctor today putting somebody between two electrodes and, <laughs> and watching them for a half hour yeah, until the timer goes off and, yeah, and paying another extra hundred thousand bucks for liability insurance? I, I forget it. In any event, if Forrest was in that business before the war, and you want to go back into it, interviewed me. While I was there, he took me to his lab and showed me what he was working on, which was a mechanical color television system. He had a, a plate that sat in front of a 12-inch black and white set um, uh, that was stationary. It had what we would call pixel holes in um, uh, it in, in an XY matrix. In front of it was another plate that moved through a very small rotary motion, it was counterweighted so it was easy to drive. Uh, those of you who know anything about mechanical color television know that, know that it was done either with big drums or, or big wheels you know, with huge motors which were hard, hard to synchronize and took up uh, enormous amounts of space. It was very creative but but I took one look at it and I didn't say anything because it, it was pretty obvious that the, throughput, the optical throughput yeah, was yeah, you know, vanishingly close to zero, you know, the little holes. Yeah. Like, forget it. Uh, about three years ago, I'm surfing the web, and there's a photograph of uh, the forest sitting at the bench with another guy behind him in front of the exact same thing that he'd shown me. And on the bench is, uh, uh, well, there's obviously the camera with a wheel in front of it. Uh, uh, so they were experimenting. I bet there aren't three people alive today who know what that picture's all about. So I wrote a little story and put it on the web. If you don't mind, I'll sit. Let me give you a little background on where I came from. I uh, don't know whether it has much to do with the story, but people always tell me I concentrate too much on the video game business. So let me go back to, to, to World War I. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, was, I was born uh, three and a half years after, what, 22 from 18 is, yeah, three and a half years after the end of World War I. My father was in the army for four years in the German army. He got all kinds of medals, didn't help any when Hitler came along. Uh, I was born in a town called Pirmazenz. It was a shoe, shoe factory town of Germany at the time. All the shoes were produced there. Uh, my mother didn't like the town, and we moved out shortly to Cologne, big city, where I will be again at the end of this June. I've been invited to speak there. It'll be fun. Uh, I grew up there, went to school there. And at age 14, got tossed out of the school summarily uh, because uh, if you weren't uh, of the Aryan race, you, know, you were not persona non grata in the school. So I worked in an office for the next two years, doing typing, 14 years old, you know, typing, shorthand, taking shorthand dictation for, for letters, uh, doing correspondence in English and German. I spoke English. Uh, and finally, uh, my father was very active at getting our uh, visas because we knew we had to leave Germany. We left in 38. In August of 38, two months ahead of Kristallnacht, Kristallnacht, uh, two two and a half months before. Uh, So we got very lucky. We didn't even know it. Uh, In New York, I worked in a factory run by uh, one of my cousins. This is 1938, the tail end of the the Depression. Uh, I think I was paid uh, I 15 cents or 20 cents an hour at the time. Uh, took home about 12 and a half dollars a week. I'm sitting in the subway on my way to work one day and someone across the aisle sitting there with a magazine. On the back of the magazine is a big ad by the National Radio Institute in Washington, D.C. They're still around. Started in 1904 and they're still around. Uh, big money in radio servicing, and television servicing. That was me. Right? I spend a buck and a half out of my twelve and a half dollars a week on that course. When I graduated, I talk, talked myself into servicing radios in a store on Lexington Avenue in 70, between 78th and 79th on the east side, uh, and I pretty soon wound up servicing three different stores. I did that for three years until I got drafted. Uh, just a curious side note, the area where I, um, the, the first store was located I Still had uh, uh, Edison supplying DC to many of the homes, and to my my uh, uh, shop, I had both AC and DC. And uh, 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 in those days, service jobs uh, uh, amounted to replacing a capacitor or a resistor or, or a tube here or there, and it was very hard to make a living at that. But it was not hard to make a living at converting radios from AC to AC/DC, which was required when. People moved into the area, plug their transformer-operated AC sets into the .DC. line, And you know what happens then? You know, smoke rises and the tar smell pervades the, uh, uh, the room, and uh, you know, pull that thing out of the wall real fast, but that's the end of the transformer. So converting those sets meant removing the transformer, changing all the tubes, from what was said six volt 63 volt tubes to 12.6- volt tubes, wiring up all the filaments in series hooking up a, a resistor in series that would add up to 110 volts for all those tubes, change the output transformer that drove the speaker because it was always a, a poor match, and a few other things like that. And for that, I could charge five bucks. Right? And I got pretty good at that. <laughs> I got pretty good at that. I could do an, a conversion uh, in about an hour. In fact, I wrote a, an, an introduction to converting sense from AC to ACDC uh, during my first into in the army, when I had nothing else to do, uh, a paper which, if it had been published, would probably be a of interest to maybe three people in the entire universe. You know, I mean, who's got DC? And <coughs> it uh, would have been an easy way to cheat on uh, repair jobs too, because when people came in, and I uh, plugged their ACDC sets in, if they were plugged in one way, they wouldn't function right. Reverse voltage. If I plugged them the right way, they'd come up and play. So I could have. Play the game and listen for the first indication of a little sh right, and pull the plug quick and reverse it. It has another service job. Another thing, <laughs> <laughs> another problem was that people just absolutely wouldn't pay for labor. So you had to charge them for material. So what we did was take a tube out, shine it up, right, plug it back in and <laughs> charge it for a tube. <laughs> While we actually replaced the capacitor somewhere or resistor or something that was... Of a short somewhere, or poorly soldered joint or something that required knowledge and experience. I really got ticked off when I went to service sets in people's homes, uh, and I'd take the stuff out and I'd be on the floor, and I had this marvelous test equipment, which looked like something out of an 1880s catalogue you know. Uh, and people would look over my shoulder and I hated that uh, and they'd make remarks like, "What's well, a nice boy like you doing in a business like this?" The reason for that was that the Reader's Digest ran a series of articles that said, "Watch out! We get jibbed by." Colon. One week it was the radio repairman; the next week it was the automobile repairman. So people had a negative view of, and I consider myself a professional. At any rate, uh, I'm now in New York. Uh, I'm running these radio stores. I'm, I'm doing design. I did Dolby-type stuff long before Dolby was out of. Uh, out of diapers. Uh, but back then uh, we had 78 RPM records. Uh, those of you who remember, there were 9-inch and 12-inch records. and What they made most efficiently was surface noise. <laughs> so it was obvious that you need to do something about that. So what do you do about that? Well, you can walk over to the radio right, through which you're playing this uh, phonograph and turn down the volume control, which was nothing but uh, rolling off the high end to eliminate the highs. Well, that uh, uh, that, you know, that diminished the quality of the music. What you really needed to do was do exactly that, but only when the music sound level was very low and the noise was predominant. So it's obvious what you have to do. You take the average sound by, di- by rectifying you know, the audio, uh, storing it, delaying it, storing it, and using the DC level you get out of it as a function of audio volume, and when that DC level gets slow enough, you take one of the vacuum tubes that we had, then make it into a variable resistor, in effect, in a divider like this, where this one getting smaller and smaller, the lower the volume is, and, and that resistor, in effect, is in series with a capacitor and rolls off the highs. So, I mean, I don't know how old Dolby uh, was when I did this, but I don't think he was out of the swan, clothes. <coughs> it's a long time ago. So I did design work and I built stuff well before the war. Then I got drafted. And of course, the army never puts you where your private capabilities were. I, mean, I, I didn't wind up at Cook and Baker School, so I'd give them that. But I wound up in the combat engineers and with all the other six foot two te- Texans and Alabamas <laughs> and, and Georgians and so learn how to lay and remove mines and movie traps and build bailey bridges and barracks. And, I got salvaged. Uh, one day I was up to my ear in water, building a Bailey Bridge. Put me on the back of a truck, took me to Camp Ritchie, Maryland, where there were another 3,000 guys just like me, foreigners, you know, with foreign language qualifications. Of course I spoke German. They made us all into uh, interrogators of prisoners of war, taught us uh, the uh, order of battle, which is uh, knowing how to recognize uniforms, or organization of every cotton pagan army in the, in the world. Uh, it was an intensive course that lasted about three three months. When I came out of that uh, I had a pretty good knowledge of um, uh, most armies that we were likely to encounter. Uh, the next thing I know is uh, I'm standing in line waiting to get on a banana boat to Europe. Uh, at that time the, uh, the, the, the Atlantic was already pretty safe. This is 1943 landing was already pretty safe, so we zigzagged in the convoy. I was in a little British boat, the Mataroa. My duty the entire trip over there was picking up, uh, taking care of the latrines, which meant picking up little brown pieces of toilet paper from the cement floor where the boat was doing this, which wasn't easy, especially if you didn't have any fingernails. Uh, When we got there, uh, the MIs, meaning myself and 25 others of us, uh, two other guys and I went to the camp commandant and said, hey, we can train your troops in military intelligence subjects, next thing I know is we're cadre. I wrote all the syllabus uh, and as it turned out, we went to several camps, lectured to 200,000 troops on our way to before D-Day, including the sex, several, uh, several armored divisions that came through. And I was a PVT, private lecturing to three star and four star generals. Uh, I couldn't screw up, it couldn't break me. Uh, uh, At the time, uh, a lot of troops were coming back from Normandy, so uh, with them came uh, all manner of ammunition and uh, weapons, uh, German weapons uh, and uh, other captured weapons, so there were weapons all over the place. They built a uh, museum for small arms and some fairly large weapons, in fact I had an 88 left over from the uh, Spanish Civil War, uh, 105, term, now uh, a whole bunch of small arms. Before I know it, I get so interested into, in small arms that I make myself into the resident expert on foreign small arms. And make a story, long story short, uh, I came out of the war uh, having written a book on the history of machine guns with 18 tons of small arms, set up three exhibits, Fort Riley, Kansas, on the Aberdeen Proving Grounds and in uh, Massachusetts and uh, I forget where, Armory. Uh, <clears throat> and I almost stayed in the army because I got so wrapped up in the history and the people involved in that industry. And, because after all, machine guns are yeah, very, very marvelous pieces of uh, mechanism. And I knew all those weapons backwards, some course I could take them back, a part of the back of them. In fact, that's exactly what we, do. we took them all apart, cleaned them all up in Paris before actually in Le Vesigny, a suburb of Paris, before we shipped them over here. <laughs> Those weapons, uh, I took them to an army depot where a bunch of Germans were crating rear axles for two and a half ton trucks at one end of the camp, moving the, the crates to the other end of the camp where another bunch of German prisoners were break the cr- crates apart and send the axles back to the front end so they can make new boxes. When they saw me coming uh, with a requirement for about 120 boxes of different sizes for weapons yet, which every <laughs> soldier likes. Yeah, they were ecstatic. Yeah. Uh, when we took this stuff to Calais, which was still in pretty bad shape at the time, uh, and uh, put it into a Liberty ship, uh, when I went to inspect them, I couldn't find it. You have no idea of how big the holes are these Liberty ships, and uh, 18 tons of the stuff, 120 bucks, it just sort of disappeared in the corner. Let me make this short. We get to New York. I finally get to go to school. I come out of school. I take a job at Emerson Radio. I wind up with a group of guys fixing the radios that came off the Samuel line in defective shape, and, uh, which was just about all of them, and uh, that lasted about, <laughs> about two months. I went back to school when I graduated with a degree in television engineering. During my time at ATIT in Chicago, I uh, had a part time job building television uh, studio equipment. Uh, At that time, it was 441 lines. Those of you old enough will remember 441 lines, not 525 lines. And of course, black and white only. Uh, Just as an example of uh, the state of technology, to generate synchronization pulses, horizontal sync pulses, which at that now are 5734 or were, when we were in the analog world. Then there were 14-something, I forgot the exact number. To, to go from 14 kilohertz down to 60 hertz and have those two singles locked together, you had to divide by 2, by 4, by 8, by 6. How did you divide in those days? How did you divide? With a thing called a blocking oscillator, which was an oscillator consisting of a vacuum tube, this big, right, running at 6.3 volts and 3 tenths of an amp, that's two watts right there, yeah, which, was, which you could lock up on an incoming signal uh, at one, one half, one third, or one fourth of the signal coming in. You do this uh, five or six times, so now we're up to six times two watts, that's 12 watts of filament heat alone, plus 250 volts of plate voltage at maybe 1050 milliamps a piece, another two, three watts just to get from 114 kilohertz down to 60 hertz. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, I mean, we had 18-inch racks full of equipment that did a hell of a lot less than what's in this watch. Right? I mean, just think of it. I mean, it's it's totally incredible. Even more incredible when I took the correspondence course from the National Radio Institute, I built. Uh, Early, uh, built a uh, little portable radio. They supplied the material. On what? On breadboards. Breadboard is a word, right? When you breadboard something, you build something in a haphazard fashion, which eventually gets converted into a design that's a prototype for production. Breadboards were breadboards. That was a cotton picking breadboard. You took uh, sockets and you, you took two wood screws, you held the socket down with wood screw breadboard. So the breadboard uh, term, uh, derives from real breadboards. Yeah. It isn't just a word that somebody used. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, the word electronics, we still don't know who came up with that. Uh, it doesn't seem to be possible to figure out who coined that word. I know I wrote articles for Electronics Magazine in 45, I think, 44 or 45. So the term was around in, 40, in the early 40s. Who coined it? I don't know. Probably somebody at RCA. RCA was everything then. I mean, there was Rad Lab next door here, and there was MIT, but in terms of consumer electronics, RCA was dominant. In fact, by the time I went into the Army, I knew the RCA tube manual from front to rear by heart. That was the Bible. And that was everything. There wasn't anything else. By the time I came out of the war, there were already 200 more tubes have been designed for special purposes. All right. <coughs> uh, I need a job. Before I take a job, I go to Chicago and visit my old friends at school. And on the way back on the train, nobody flew in those days, I read the New York paper and there's this ad by Loral. Loral, it's a big company, it was, was very small then. It had just been termed Loral. Loral is uh, Contraction of Lawrence and Alpert, the two guys who ran two companies, could combine the two companies. I think there were about 75 people. They were into the military electronics business. What did I get hired for? What did the ad call for? A guy designed a television set. Why they wanted a tel- television set designer? Why they wanted to build a television set? Is an enigma to me to this day. But when they offered a job as a television engineer, I took it. Got interviewed by Sam Lakoff, who was the chief engineer. It was his baby, I guess. And we hired one more guy, Leo Beiser, who later became a big uh, light in the laser heavens. And the two of us sat in a screen room for a year and built the television set from scratch. And when we got done, we had a set that can be competed with what was on the market, um, it was about, just about as good. We had actually had a projection system made by Philips with a one-inch projection tube of Schmidt optics, so the two face backwards into a Schmidt optics mirror uh, through a con- convergence plate and another lens and projected a picture maybe the size of a 17-inch television set, which was a big deal then. Uh, <coughs> when that project was done, uh, I had a choice, either leave the company or go into military electronics. So I, next thing I know is I'm building radar equipment. And uh, did that for the next 35 years. We started a small company, we being Sam Lackhoff, the chief engineer, a couple of years later. Uh, got a lot of military work. I didn't have the money to uh, buy the, buy the uh, material for all the production that was required. I became part of a holding company who provided, provided the money. Uh, next thing I know is I'm moving to Manchester, New Hampshire, because the holding company has an empty mill building right on the Merrimack River up there, and that's how I came to be in Manchester, New Hampshire, which at the time to me was a place somewhere close to Siberia a place to go through on the way to White Mountains, right? Uh, and that's where all my I was married by that time. All my kids grew up there. My family grew up there. Uh, I, uh, uh, the company grew very, very rapidly. But unfortunately, it's just a sister company lost money faster than we could make it, and that was the end of the company. And joined Sanders, and some of the older people in the group here might remember Sanders, Oceans, National New Hampshire. We were as big as 11,000 people at one time. Biggest employer in the state of New Hampshire through the 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, then became Sanders, uh, uh, Sanders uh, Lockheed, then Sanders Lockheed Martin. And today it's uh, BAE, British Aerospace. Still uh, quite a large company and a tremendous amount of really good engineering going on in there. I, for about ten years I ran the equipment design division there. I had about 500 engineers and tech support people working for me. So I was plenty busy. Uh, the tele- television uh, system uh, and system engineering was something that I didn't see for the better part of what, 60, 60 50, 55 to 65, about 60, 10 years. But it had always been percolating in the back of my mind that you should be able to do something interactive with a television set. How could you get into a television set, early television? Only one way, through the antenna terminals, right? That discouraged anybody else who was thinking of doing something interactive with the TV set. And I'm sure there were people, in fact there were some people who did just that in the army for missile launching practice. Uh, Got discouraged uh, from building something that would generate Channel 3 or Channel 4 singles and get in through the antenna terminals. Well, I wasn't discouraged. Uh, I sat in in New York one night uh, waiting for somebody to come in on the footsteps of a bus terminal downtown waiting for this other guy. And I wrote some notes, which I converted to a four-page document on September 1st, 66, and that's the Magna Carta of the video game business. It's all there. Uh, I had some people, countersigned it, very conscious of uh, how to handle uh, IP material. In fact, uh, we can dwell on that a bit because I wound up spending a lot of time in court in the 70s Fighting, uh, fighting licensing battles. We won every one of those. and The major reason why we won all of those is not just because we had a good position and strong patents, but because I saved every scrap of paper we ever wrote. And I made it an absolute mandatory requirement. The guys who worked for me kept every scrap of paper, dated everything, had everything signed every day. There was virtually a day-by-day record of what we did over the course of two and a half years from 66 through 68 and a half. During that period we went through about eight different sets of uh, uh, progressively more complex video games. Uh, I have a, a slide that I'll bring up, I'll hopefully bring some of that to life. Wait for this thing to come back out of the sleep mode. Ah, it's already there. Uh, I made this presentation once before uh, in Paris last year, so. uh, David Winter is a Parisian who has been very helpful to me. He went to uh, Chicago with me about 10 years ago to rescue all the documents that. Had been stored by the lawyers, so it was never returned the way it should have been returned. Uh, and uh, uh, since I was in Paris and he's a Parisian, I figured I'd have him come up on stage with me and get his name up there in black and white. So that's who David Winter is. Uh, uh, here's the first page of that document. Unlike it, if you can read it from back there. Uh, but if you could read it, the first paragraph is sort of conflicted. Uh, it says, um, yeah, uh, it's, it's um, phrased as if it was a military document. Um, after all, I'm a chief engineer for equipment design, division manager of a military company. And here you know, I'm futzing around with uh, this uh, definitely unmilitary stuff and how do I handle this? Well, by the time we get to the end of the paragraph, I say, well, hell with it. You know, that's, uh, this equipment will play through channel LP for Let's Play, right? and thereafter I ignore the military aspect. And I go through uh, the descriptions of of, uh, of uh, how to put extremely basic symbology on the screen and make it do meaningful games. The name of the game is games, it's not graphics. The whole concept of having elaborate graphics on the screen you have to get out of your head. There were no graphics. I mean, there were. Gra- Graphics, vector-driven graphics uh, of some sort in a very expensive uh, military systems and some commercial systems. But graphics on the home television said, forget it, right? So what graphics can we get up there? A rectangle? How about one rectangle? What can you do with one rectangle? Well, you can go to the store. Excuse me. You can go buy a, a plastic gun, either pistol or rifle, right? You can open it up. You can put some electronics into it, you can put a light sensor at the end, put, put a t- uh, two-and-a-half-inch uh, focal length lens up front and you can shoot at the spot. And when you hit it, it disappears, right? Okay, huh? okay. so a light guns, so, the very first thing we did was, uh, the first thing I did was send a technician out to, to uh, Walmart, I was at Walmart, it was uh, C.S. Roebuck, I guess, buy, <laughs> by, uh, <laughs> buy, a, plastic, buy a plastic gun. I made the first light gun. This is 60, early sixty-seven. Uh, what else can you do with a single spot? Well, you can move it around, uh, put a second spot up there, and you take one spot, chase another spot. Now you have chase games. What happens when you meet up with the the other guy? The other guy disappears, right? And then there's a button. And you push the button, and he reappears, and you repeat. Primitive. Well, it's primitive, but uh, if you come to my house or if you go to the museum, museum of Moving Image in New York, where a replica of video game number two, which is at the Smithsonian, is uh, actively uh, on, on, uh, on display, where school kids go through by the hundreds every week, they play that game and they play uh, the ping pong game that came later. At any rate, from that very simple machine which Should be able to show you in one of these slides. You're going to do something? Yeah. Uh, We went through a whole series of developments. Instead of two and a half years, Uh, going from left to right, that big gray box on the left, I'll have to point to it. On the left is a, a generator that service people use to put up lines or bars or crossbars or color bars up to adjust television sets. Those of you who are old enough know that television set had linearity controls, vertical hole controls, horizontal size controls, vertical size control. <laughs> and in order to set these up at the factory level, you used a box like that that, uh, that could um, put um, uh, reference patterns on the screen and you fiddled with the adjustments. Well, since that box had a channel 3 and channel 4 oscillator in it, I didn't have to build that, right? So. On top of that, it had sink circuitry, I didn't build that either. So all I had to do was to verify that I knew how to put a spot on the screen, It's a little box that would put up horizontal, little horizontal lines which, that formed into a spot, and, which I could move vertically and horizontally on the screen. And that's what that little chassis with those four vacuum tubes do. Why vacuum tubes? This is 1966. I'm running a division. I haven't built anything for five years. I'm a vacuum tube guy at that point. <laughs> huh? So it works. The next guy, of course, uh, chucks the vacuum tube, he's a technician, Bill Harrison, the guy whom you saw that movie earlier, saw up on screen, you'll see it again. Uh, and we wind up with this chassis that has a wooden handle on side. What's the wooden handle do? Uh, you have an overlay on the screen, it shows a fireman with a fire hose, the fire hose is transparent the building at which he's directing his fire hose has an open window, an open door, and you're pumping the handle. You bring up blue color from the bottom, which appears behind the hose and rises through the hose. And you're fighting against the, a timer, which you said. And if you don't make it in time, the color changes from uh, blue uh, to red, and the whole screen goes red, and the house goes on fire. It's a game, yeah. And you've got to really work at it to get there on time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 I think I have a. Well, anyway, let's. Uh, if you go to the tail end, the brown box up there is uh, exactly what I just called call the brown box because it's covered with brown sticky paper. Uh, they make it look a little better than the cardboard underneath the sticky paper or the aluminum chassis below. It was a final model, which uh, was the prototype for the Magnavox Odyssey in 1972. That started the uh, video game industry. In between, we had a different kind of a problem. Uh, we had uh, come up with a ping-pong game, let me advance this a bit. Uh, here's the third light, first light gun and some elementary ideas uh, how to fill a bucket with water. Uh, here's the chassis, the same chassis you saw up there, close up, that's at the Smithsonian. Uh, here's the overlay of the of the uh, the fireman, uh, and here's the bird, uh, you know, you put a white spot under his belly and you shoot at it, you know, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, uh, here we are, and if you look at the bottom of that, uh, what are we looking at? We're looking at two spots that are manually manually controlled, they go up and down, and there's a, comment there somewhere in red that says, be neat if we can always also move them horizontally, which in fact we did. And guess what they turned into? The paddles. There's the ball off the side there under the H1. Okay. This is the first disclosure of doing a, a, a ping pong game, a game in which machine controlled symbol like the ball would interact with manually controlled symbology on the screen, the paddles, and where something would happen when the two intersected. Like the ball bouncing off the paddle, and it's the basic claims on various patents that issued to us several years later uh, of the interaction between between machine control and manually controlled symbology on the screen that uh, made us eventually made us 100 million bucks in 1970 type money, so multiplied by two. Uh, this is typical of the documentation we kept. It didn't matter what form it was or how. Crude it was, how scribbled it was, but there it is. And it's, there's a date up on top, right? And a, and a name somewhere. It beats me what the name is. It's on you know, a Bill Rush's notebook. Uh, the seven units we built uh, were built over a period of about two and a half years. In the middle of that cycle, we had a real problem. Now that we have it, after we had ping-pong game, games going late in 67, now that we have it, what the hell do we do with it? Right? <laughs> well, this is a military electronics company. I can count on no help whatsoever from management who, uh, I report poor, the executive VP, uh, who uh, uh, weren't shy about asking me, whether well, I'm still playing around with this stuff, you know, frequently. Yeah. Well, now, six years later when the money was coming in, I like, go, oh, water of an open faucet, yeah, of course, they were all told me of how supportive they'd been. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, uh, the question was, what do we do with it? First concept was to uh, help spark up the nascent uh, cable business. There were uh, very few cable operators, uh, Teleprompter was one of the bigger ones. And by big, we mean 100,000 subscribers in California, 100,000 in the New York area. Uh, so I picked up the phone, and Cole Turkey. Called Irving Khan, who was the uh, president of Teleprompter then. But I got uh, somebody else, um, uh, a, uh, one of the VPs. Both of those guys that had actually been involved in building the Teleprompter device. They were now in the cable business, and I got somebody to come up and look at what we had. Actually, came up because their concept was that perhaps Sanders could help them um, uh, connect the t- cable business with home security, which makes a lot of sense. Um, so they came up, they saw what we had, they got very interested. Uh, he asked, Hobbs uh, ask, uh, uh, Schlafly U- VP came up in a blinding snowstorm in January of 68. He made Irving Kahn come up, who was the president of Teleprompter, Mr. Cable in those days. He came up in this black limousine next month through another blinding snowstorm we had an agreement within a month. I went down to New York, worked on the mechanics of it, and then they ran out of cash, and that was the end of that. The whole idea was that since we can't do good graphics and are limited to putting overlays on top of the which, on the screen, which was, isn't so horrible, you know. Today people make fun of it, but uh, it worked. Uh, and what was more obvious than pointing a television camera at a nice colorful display of something? or actually point at a moving sceni- scenery, and I have that in the background, and overlay our crude symbology on top of that, and play with that. And we took it further than that a few years later. we uh developed, we took some of the Odysseys, the original Magnavox Odysseys, converted them so they could be used at a cable station to put a couple more players, pad- paddle uh, players, on the screen that move randomly around the screen, who always happened to, Hap- when you're at the receiving end who always happened to be in the right place to intercept the balls. It's, uh, it's amazing how often they were at least as good as some of the human, human players. Uh, in any event, uh, the concept was to enhance, enhance uh, the cable business by providing this interactive uh, uh, game capability. And that, when that dried out, we had a new problem. What do we do now? Finally dawned on me that all the components that were inside these boxes I showed you uh, the brown box in particular, were the same components that were in the television set. And who is more uh, capable of producing a piece of hardware like that, A television manufacturer. So in 69, we paraded RCA, Sylvania, Philco, GE, Magnavox, several other US television manufacturers. And nobody in this room probably remembers said we made television sets in this country. Uh, uh, <coughs> Uh, And they all came to Nashville and they all said, hey, this is great, this is great. Uh, But only RCA started to negotiate a contract. That got too onerous. We walked away from it. But fortunately, one of the members of the team team, um, changed jobs, became a VP for marketing for Magnavox in New York. He was so impressed with what he saw. He talked to the guys in Fort Wayne, Indiana at the head end. and next thing we know is we get invited to go to Fort Wayne, we make a presentation out, Uh, we had 12, 12 games at the time. And one guy, the general manager, uh, Jerry Martin, said, it's a goal, just like that. One guy with vision. Uh, in the next year, the lawyers uh, fussed around for a whole year uh, to come to a, uh, an agreement. Then the engineers had all of nine months to convert our bucks into a, as usual, into a, a prototype and into a, produ- into a piece of production, and by May of '72, Magnavox was able to show um, the Odyssey uh, in uh, various places in the U.S. Uh, so so happened that uh, during a demonstration in California on May the 27th, 72, uh, a young man by the name of Nolan Bushnell played the Odyssey game hands-on. Uh, he hired Alan Alcorn and told him to build a ping-pong game, ping game, which they named Pong, uh, they came this arcade business took off the big Bird late in 72 uh, by the end of 73 Atari had already built something like I think it was 7,000 uh, pound games uh, the co- competition moved in early by that end of that year Bally Midway made, made at least 10,000 cop copies so Atari had a tough time were, uh, it was heavy competition by then let me move on here here's the brown box. Oops, went by too fast. Uh, you can't really see because it's too small. But These little black dots you see all over the place, they're all transistors. There are about 40 transistors in there and about 40 diodes. The diodes are mostly in diode AND gates and NAND gates. The transistors do such things as uh, as uh, uh, generate horizontal vertical sync, generate the, uh, the spots. Uh, uh, some of them are flip-flops that redirect the ball to go from left to right or right to left. And coincidence detection is done with AND gates. Uh, you got to remember there, there were no microprocessors. This is 66, not 76. Not there were no microprocessors. There were, there were integrated circuits at the time. And we tried them, but they were power-hungry. And this thing was battery-operated, as you can tell. It couldn't conceive of a consumer product running off uh, wall transformer. I mean, it's so common uh, practice now that it's hard to think that we started off with a battery operated device, but everything that, uh, uh, yeah, it never even occurred to us to, to build a uh, power transformer, rectify a rectifier power supply. Uh, novel items, ec- external hand controls, uh, the light gun. There was a speed control in the back so you can change the rate of, Of the ball motion, Uh, Magnavox. uh, If it will respond, I'm going to play a movie for you. But unfortunately, this this program was made by the great people in uh, Microsoft, and it doesn't want to work. I'll play for you. I have it in a separate file. Ah, here we go. Well,
2: here
0: we are. Well, it's, man. it's Switched. This is PowerPoint X, which I didn't ask for. I get for free from Mac. <laughs> <laughs> Let me show you. And it has never worked since the day. Come on. I have the same problem in Paris. Let me see if I if I can get out of this predicament. It's doing something. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. All right. <laughs> Here we are. Come on. I'll do it in a quick time. And crank back to 1967.
2: Well, here we are playing ping-pong when we ought to be working. Here's our ball, volleying back and forth, uh, one free ball, plus one net, courtesy of the local CATV station. Here's my partner Bill, and I we're going to play ping-pong for you in a minute. But before we do, I'd like to show you the controls that we're using, which are part of the plug-in module, the uh, the uh, Ping pong playing module, gaming plug-in module, of the our purpose box we talked about earlier. Uh, there is a horizontal knob here, as you can see, which when I twiddle it, moves my paddle from left to right. There is a vertical control, which moves my paddle up and down. Finally, there's an English knob, which allows me to put curves on the ball, control the vertical position of the ball as it leaves my paddle. Whenever I intercept the ball, if I don't miss it and bat it back at my opponent. I have control over the ball's vertical position, and that's what the English knob is for. And watch me fake him out in a minute. There's another control here, a serve knob, which puts the ball into play. Serves it from my side if it's out of play. In my, on my position, uh, if it should go out of play. In Bill's position, he's got the same kind of a button right here, it pushes it, and the ball comes in from that side. Ready? on your side. It's on my side? <clears throat> okay, let's go. Let me move away from the net a bit. Here we go. A one, a two, a three, and down I go, and up I go, <laughs> and down I go. Now watch me fake them up. Ah, didn't do it. Ah, I did it this time. Okay. Oops. One, two. Four. You want to score, Bill? Sure. Let's, let's, well, Oof. okay, one and nothing. <laughs> Here we go. Up and down and up. He's getting tricky. Uh, uh, uh. Missed it. One up. Keep it on the table, bear. Here we go. Fake <laughs> the out again. Two to one. We'll play up to five. Huh? Good show. Get closer to the net. Make it a little faster. Well, two up. Missed it again, three or two. I guess that makes a count of five, huh? <clears throat> Okay, who else would like to play? Why don't you come on in and play the game against my evil partner here. we just take the again.
0: Well, that's how it started. <laughs> uh, now, if this... Uh... <clears throat> Thank you. up to, come on. Uh, the Odyssey, uh, which came out in 72 is uh, what you see on the screen right now. It's doing this all by itself. I didn't have a damn thing to do with it. Blame <laughs> Microsoft to hell with it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, for you a commercial that was uh, broadcast by 1970, 72 commercials. You're going to have to lower the volume, thankfully. Uh, Magnavox. Odyssey, the electronic game of the future. Odyssey easily attaches to your television to create a totally new play and learning experience for all ages. Odyssey is football and hockey. The excitement of Wimbledon. The snow-covered slopes of the Rockies. Odyssey is an electronic teacher. Odyssey, the game of the future, from Magnavox. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, in '72, Magnavox sold close to 100,000 Odysseys. By the beginning of '72, uh, '75, uh, the last of the uh, Odyssey ones were. Uh, out of distribution. Uh, I think the total run was 350,000 units. So uh was not an inauspicious beginning from a cold start. At the same time the arcade business was ramping up, and I'm sure that Odyssey sales uh, benefited substantially from the popularity of the pound game out there. There's no question about that. <coughs> yeah. Just so you think that I never did anything else but uh, build video games, I've got another presentation. This one is an Adobe file. And with any luck, this one won't do a, a Microsoft uh, on us. Where are you? I can give you some idea what engineering was like for a guy like me who practiced in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and how it changed. I put the slide together. Uh, I won't bother. Let me see. I want to do this. How the hell do I get to uh, full screen mode? Here we are. There we go. That's me in the lab. That's, that was me, me getting the National Medal of Technology in Washington at a very fancy ceremony in the White House uh, with all my family present. <coughs> Uh, let me take you through a bunch of first. I put this stuff together because on occasion uh, I'll walk down the street, meet a friend of mine with a stranger. Uh, he introduces me as a guy who invented video games, and of course the first question is, uh, which game did you invent? I'm hoping to hear that I invented uh, yeah, Pac-Man or something else that will remind him of their long lost youth. You know? And when I mention the fact that well, I came up with a concept of Playing video games, their eyes glaze over, you know, and we start talking about the weather. What the hell's a concept, right? Uh, you know, uh, so, <laughs> uh, I said, so I said, Well, I mean, I did a few other things besides coming up with video games. And here are a few other things. And among other things, almost all of these wound up in patents. I have 150 patents worldwide, 50 US, and tons and tons of stuff never even went through the patent route. And as I said earlier, uh, The the Video game patents made a couple hundred million bucks in today's money, so not too shabby. Uh, Start out with uh, the top thing in the wooden cabinet, which is obviously the back end of a radio receiver cabinet, uh, is a uh, voice-switched intercom. Uh, An intercom doesn't have a listen-talk switch. Uh, You can see it has vacuum tubes, uh, there are four of them on the left, four of them on the right, two in the middle. Uh, if, if you think of them as transistors, each one of those are dual trials. So that's like eight transistors on one side, eight transistors on the other side, two more in the middle. The uh, thing worked like a charm. In the process I had to invent a circuit uh, that allowed the uh, audio to go both ways under logic control without making a click, or a click noise when it went from one mode to the other. Turns out that I had reinvented uh, what was called uh, balance modulator that had been invented by Bell Labs about ten years before, but I invented it going, on, going to work on the subway <coughs> in an entirely different way. Did this thing switch on me? Yeah, uh, Going down the one step, uh, there's a patent uh, front page on the right. To the left of it is a ham transmitter, all band, uh, two to thirty megahertz ham transmitter with a VCO, Variable Frequency Oscillator on the left-hand side with a crank to dial it through the entire spectrum. And the, at the right-hand side of the entire spectrum dialed up through a combination of inductor and capacitive tuning. Uh, that transmitter had the equivalent output of a 100-watt transmitter, but it depended upon the new modulation system I came, I came up with. And the pattern on the right-hand is the uh, pattern that covers the modulation pattern. Uh, I had never done any ham, ham gear, ham work before, but uh, my boss, uh, the president of a small company we started in New York was an old time ham, and before we had any contracts, he says, hey, I want you to build a ham transmitter, build a ham transmitter. So what did I do? I bought a copy of QSC magazine and read up on ham transmitters, I built a ham transmitter. And engineers build stuff, right? Well, we didn't know how. we dug into books whatever it took and we built stuff. And Not only did I build stuff, but I built something that did the same thing as the equivalent transmitter, twice the size, four times the weight and four times the input power and I got a patent for it on top of it. Right? A little, is your noodle, right? all right, next, next case, uh, a little too fast, here is the very first light gun we built but it was not meant to shoot at the screen was meant to do uh, quizzes with instant feedback. We we had a method of encoding spots that would come up in a uh, presentation, uh, multiple choice quiz questions on it, Uh, and when you pointed the light gun at the spots, depending upon uh, the information in the spot, you either got a correct or, uh, or incorrect answer in terms of a red light or a green light popping up on your gun. Instant feedback. The whole idea was to take a whole bunch of existing videotape uh, lecture series, which were all straight delivery, right? which put you to, uh, to sleep uh, you know, by the time you got to the first 20 minutes. Except my son, Jim, who went to the polytechnic took all his physics between 2 and 4 in the morning off of video. How he did that, I don't know. But he did In any event, the idea was to take existing videotape, which is expensive to produce, and wait until the instructor takes a deep breath at a propitious moment and insert a quiz at that moment that relates to the material he's just uh, covered, and you go up there with your light gun to the screen and you get instant feedback on whether you understood the subject. Uh, Seemed like a really good idea, and that's what this first gadget does. The one down below was our first uh, rifle, both of these wound up as patents. Here we are in '67 playing ping pong. We've been there. Uh, uh, the, <coughs> the idea of, uh, of transferring data, this thing keeps switching on me, idea of transferring data optically through the screen because there was no other way to get it to innards, which is a story by itself. I went to Magnavox and we had a contractual relationship. Which allowed me to input ideas into the Magnilox facility. Well, when you get in the position where you're working in one company and trying to cooperate with another company, you'll find out how, how hard it, how hard it is to project concepts, ideas uh, into the other company. Every company's got their own culture. This thing is in a, in a automatic mode. Every company's got their own culture, and it's very difficult to project ideas. Um, the idea was to uh, I put a, a coded spot on the lower right hand corner of the screen which you could extract by means of an optical sensor in the uh, suction cup. Uh, but the, the earliest codes were just eight lines, they were either white or black, right? which meant that you had an 8-bit code uh, to deal with and at a 60 hertz rate which was respectable. Right? So that's, uh, that's a bid at a 60 hertz rate, that's 60 uh, bit rate effectively. Respectable enough to transfer quite a bit of information, you could bring up a page out of a out of a uh, uh, out of a uh, airplane schedule, for example, uh, that way um, we could never find anybody who wanted it on the right hand side of that picture down down below on the bottom right hand side is one of my assistants in front of a television set where we were extracting data from a uh, 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 wind sensor and other uh, weather equipment, and then projected and displayed on screen alphanumerics. How did we get that stuff on the screen? We had to go through antenna terminals. We had to be in sync with what was going on inside without being able to reach inside and extract the existing sync signal. How the hell did we do this? Well, it turns out that there's a very lively uh, magnetic field around every television set that has magnetic deflection with a CRT that has a very prominent yeah, horizontal component. So you can pick that up with a piece of wire and if you're uh, good enough with analog circuits design, you can clean that signal up, phase shifted and now you've got a horizontal sink. If you, if you put a white spot in the lower right hand corner of your screen, uh, you can put a photo cell there through a suction cup and bingo, you've got vertical sink which needs cleaning up and delaying and all that. Uh, that's how we did it, but how do you get Uh, How do you get the alpha on the screen? The only entrance is for the antenna terminals. Well, it turns out, uh, if you think about it, if you know anything about uh, analog television, white was zero RF carrier. Zinc uh, zinc signals were maximum RF transmission. So when you suppress the the RF transmission, you get white. So what do you do? You put a little box between you and the antenna terminals, Put two resistors in series and a switch in between, and when you close that switch, your crowbar, the input signals, and what happens on the screen? You have a spot that's the length of the time, duration of the crowbar. If you feed that crowbar uh, from a, a, a data source like the data source uh, we provided, bingo, up comes data. Right? Oh, alpha, up comes alphanumerics. In fact, that is the way we propose to do captions. Uh, that never played because uh, we couldn't find anybody who wanted it. Because as you, as you probably know, uh, today's captions uh, you know, are generated by one little chip, which wasn't even a gleam in our eyes when we did all this stuff. On uh, to um, the next thing. Uh, oh, somewhere along the line, I, which one am I up to? Uh, this is Kidvid. Stand still. That's kidding me. Well, never mind. Uh, somewhere along the line, I decided to go into the toy and game business. And I hooked myself up with Marvin Glass and Associates, who were the largest independent toy and game designers in Chicago at the time. Uh, it was with them that I did things like Simon, Computer Perfection, and others, uh, which were really successful games. But the first thing you wanted me to do was uh, do a phonograph. Uh, a uh, uh, record changer that could recognize lands and bands, uh, so you could pre-program it to play band one, band three, band five, or replay band two. Or if your wife said, "Hey, I like that, play that again," uh, that took about a year. Required looking optically down from the, from the turnarm at at the, at the uh, phonograph record and recognize the difference in reflection from a, from a land area between bands, which was substantially stronger than from a groove area and then act upon it. That was our first introduction of microprocessors. The microprocessor in that box was a TMS-1000 made by TI. It was a 4-bit processor of 1K of memory, 4-bit memory. It was the same processor that wound up in Simon, Computer Perfection, and all these other games. Uh, Programming that uh, TMS-1000 required us to have a paper tape reader that was connected through the telephone line. To a computer someplace in Pennsylvania, run by TI. Uh, my telephone bill at the end of each month looked like the national debt, you know, <laughs> and the bit rate was like 120 baud, maybe. You know? It was it was painful, but we cut our teeth on the on that on that turntable. Uh, down below, looking back to it, damn thing switched on me. Down below is a pinball machine. <clears throat> Someone along the line has said, well, if we can't do decent graphics, why don't, why don't we take a camera and point it at a real pinball game and uh, record all this gyration, all the gyrations of so the bumpers, the lights flashing, and all this good stuff, and play that off of VCR. This is early VCR days. Uh, in the background, and overlay the uh, the ball, right? and um, nest data in the video, such that the ball knows where it is. Such so when he's up against a particular bumper, he knows how to bump, how the how the ball's off. We did all that. That required uh, quite a bit of engineering. We never sold that concept for one simple reason. A couple of the military types uh, came in and looked at what we had done, and uh, they had only one question for us. And the question was. Can you shoot at Russian tanks? Uh, we thought about that for about 30 microseconds, and now we're in the military electronics uh, business. And from there on out, we built hardware that was uh, suitable for the military. We built uh, we built a training system for the combat engineers, where the combat engineer who normally has a big vehicle where he shoots satchel charges at, uh, at embankments uh, uh, by looking through a monocular at whatever he's shooting at and turning the crosshairs on the on the object, then pull the trigger and out goes that big charge. Uh, we train them by having looked through that same monocular, with the same hand wheel, by looking at what? A television set with the VCR playing a, a model scene where Russian tanks going by. You know? <coughs> we had that system once and a similar system in uh, Washington doing a demonstration of military hardware. There's an open demonstration of military hardware in Washington every year where the public is invited, and we're demonstrating this, and also the shooting a, a, a light on a tank on, at Russian tanks going by on a big projection screen, and uh, three guys from the Russian embassy came by and they said, hey, can we play at that? He said, yeah, you're welcome, but we always hit the Russian tanks. Right? They said, that's not nice, but they played anyway. Uh, <laughs> we took that year to the Pentagon once, and if you've ever been there, you better get roller skates. That place is enormous. Yeah. and Before we were through demonstrating, the, the Director of Research and Development was shooting at Russian tanks and several two-star generals were shooting at Russian tanks. And did we get a program out of it? No. <laughs> Let me ramble out here. We're into the towing game business now. Here's good old Simon with the front page of uh, the patent. And it was square when we filed the patent application. Uh, some genius at uh, Marvin Glass, the designer, decided it should be round and it wound up being round. It probably would have sold as a square box, too. Uh, and it's still around here, what, thirty years later. Yeah. Uh, this is a long story, uh, and i am about out of time? Yeah. Let, let me just finish up with this, because it's a long, it has a there's a story you ought to remember. Somewhere along the line, this is in about 1982, 83, if I enlarge that thing, I can't do it here. You probably, can anybody read the date on that patent? It's two years before that patent issue, three years before that patent issued. I came up with a concept of digitizing a person's face and sticking that digitized face on top of a cartoon character. Okay. Now think about it. How many billions of dollars worth of, uh, of uh, football games or baseball games are out there from electronic devices? Eh? Uh, first, I built a device made out of a Coleco Vision game on which I superimposed my head facing a camera. And here's my head moving around like the paddle on a ping pong game. I take that to Marvel Glass. I'd say that's okay. Uh, I went on from that, built some, something that looked better. We brought in in uh, Bally, Chief Engineer of Bally came, John Perser who was an ex-baseball player and uh, general manager of uh, Bally Midway, and we had an instant sign up for a license. I went on and built another piece of hardware sent to, uh, to Bally. This one was a large board. That's the one that was pictured before the damn thing disappeared on me. Uh, where is it? Yeah, that's the board about 20-odd, come on, hold still, about 20-odd ICs on it. Uh, It uh, produced, uh, I think it was an 8-bit resolution, black and white, uh, and ran interlaced and was uh, basically copied by the ballet people that put it to a game. It wound up in a game that had a camera inside of a stand-up arcade game. Uh, The game went on trial in a, in a, uh, an arcade in Chicago. It didn't take two days before some idiot got up on a stool and mooned the camera and that was the end of that project. <laughs> what, uh, what came out of it was digitizing the faces of four band members of uh, uh, a rock band uh, and it became, that became an arcade game and that started it off. That was the end of it. I contributed about six or eight pages uh, to the beginning of that patent and uh, maybe the first 10 or 15 pictures, uh, illustrations, but um, I sort of lost track of it and I never saw the final submittal. Ten years later I get a telephone call. It's the, uh, uh, the lawyer who is in charge of Marvin Glass's estate. What's he on the phone for? He wants to know whether they should renew uh, the patent, uh, patents in England and France. Germany, some other places. And he went through a whole bunch of patents I was familiar with. I said, yes, no, 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 yes, the best of my ability. He comes to a number I don't recognize. I said, what's that? Read the title. It's this patent. I said, oh, isn't that interesting? And I didn't say anymore. I got, in those days I couldn't go on the web and get a patent, right? I go to some outfit that faxes patents to you. That same afternoon I look at this patent. Here's this patent. It doesn't have my name on it. Right? It's got my 15 pages of my, and I have all the original stuff still, in my possession to this day. Uh, has all my my uh, my text, textual material. It's got all my figures. How did it happen? To so this day, I don't know. Make a long story short, we negotiated with we being my then partner, and I negotiated with the the glass uh, uh, people to uh, get get the rights to try and peddle it. Tried for about five or six years. All the law firms. Uh, uh, that were offered to support us, uh, uh, had a proviso that uh, if it didn't play and there was no income we were liable for expenses, which could have been millions. Of course that was a no-no. So the thing died. Had that been properly pursued at the time, had I known, seen this patent, uh, when it was submitted, which it should have been, because if it was submitted in good faith that's one thing with me left off. If it wasn't submitted in good faith, that's fraud on the Patent Office. Uh, so it would have been thrown out anyhow. But if it had stood up in court, we could have made a fortune of money. It's the most important thing I ever did outside of coming up with a basic uh, video game concept and it got loused up someplace because I didn't watch the lawyers, so be careful. <laughs> Don't take anything for granted. Don't throw anything away and I'm open for questions for whatever time we got left. Yeah, or address it to a young lady here because she can relate it to me. My ears ain't what they used to be, I'm 87, so I'm lucky to be here. Uh, hi, my, my name is Jesper
2: Jewell. Um, so the question is really, uh, when, when you're thinking about the idea of video games, did you think about like, who was supposed to play games? So yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Uh, right from the beginning we thought it was a family affair. It was never intended to be a one-on-one thing. Even when we used a gun, a light gun to shoot at the screen, it was always the other person moving the, moving the spot around. Right? If, if you remember seeing the overlays in the Magnavox uh, Odyssey commercial, uh, say of the Haunted House, the, the other guy he was moving the spot around behind the open windows and, and you with the light gun were trying to hit the, the window. It was always meant to be a family affair. It was never in our mind to be a one-on-one type thing. It was never meant to be an antisocial thing with guys uh, killing guys and blood all over the screen. <laughs> Questions?
3: Thanks so much for the great presentation. I'm curious about that moment where you were in management and you started making things again and you felt like you were doing things with tubes and and you said that was a little bit out of sync with what was in vogue at the time. Did you have people where you showed them your work and they saw the tubes and they were just like, oh, please, tubes?
0: Yeah, by the time uh, uh, February, March of 67 rolled around, we had uh, a demonstration of that big chassis with a wooden handle on the side that played seven different games. Uh, And we thought, uh, we being the technician who worked with me and me, thought that would be the better part of, of Valor to bring management into the picture, we already showed what we did to the director of R&D, who had already given me two thousand bucks of direct uh, uh, labor and about five hundred bucks for material—very <laughs> generous—and the, uh, the director of patents. And they were both friends of mine because, uh, in my position, I was part of the patent review committee. These guys were on the committee, so it was like a little family affair. And they looked at my stuff and. they uh, especially Herb Kampman, the director of, the, uh, of R&D, uh, really liked shooting at the screen. He got good at shooting the screen from the hip and I was in, so we decided we have to show management. We can't do this sub-rosa forever. Uh, I prepared for that demonstration uh, by uh, recording the introduction of each of the seven games on a tape recorder. and I put a 4.5 megahertz FM oscillator into my little you know, my big box, which whose output was summed into the video. So it came out as audio on the speaker of the, of the television set so so before I played each one of the games for the uh, for the audience which turned out to be the president of the company and the whole board of directors because they happened to be that day there that day i I didn't have to fump the introductions because I had a pre-recorded I still have that original uh, audio tape and I digitized and it's on my website uh, and uh, I have everybody there except for two members of the uh, the board of directors, made long faces, and the president of the company said in effect, well, uh, show me how we can make money off of this, right? Uh, well, it, I, I'm managing a division. I can take two people and put them aside on my overhead, doesn't even ripple my overhead, at a $10 million direct labor payroll. So the work just went on, they didn't have to know what my boss, the, uh, uh, a VP for engineering, he knew what I was doing. He remarked on occasion, are you still screwing around with this stuff there? I laughed and said, yeah, we're getting there. Uh, when we finally signed up people, the money started to come in and of course uh, the tune changed considerably. But uh, uh, I guess it's possible to do independent things in a company if you develop the right connections inside the company and if what you're doing has some real merit. But it was hard. I mean, I went through the speech before how difficult it was to figure out what the hell to do with this stuff. Because there's anybody around who could tell me what to do with it. I had to generate every step of the way from inside out. Any other questions?
3: Other than uh, gaming being sort of a solitary thing, you mentioned before that that wasn't the original. I'm sorry,
0: I, I have a problem with women's voices. Oh, sorry. That's so, another subject. Anybody in here, <laughs> uh, everybody in here uh, wants to get into audiology and really solve the problem of uh, uh, helping people with hearing deficiencies, which has, not, in 50% of the cases that has nothing to do with uh, amplitude. I mean, amplitude you can uh, amplitude deficiency, you could hearing loss, you can make up for with ordinary amplifier, which is what every hearing aid does. That's not the problem. The Problem is that the stuff that leaves your ear is an encoded signal. It goes up to your brain, and it gets decoded up there, and a descrambler doesn't work fast enough as you get older because there's a whole lot of stuff missing. Sibilants are missing; they no longer get transmitted, and uh, well, a substantial portion of female voices get screwed up in the process of the encoding and decoding up there. And somebody, somewhere along the line, has to solve that problem. If you want to solve that problem, you can make a lot of money. Okay, so... uh,
3: (laughs) (laughs) Now that I've intimidated you... uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm wondering
0: if there is anything other than people playing games by themselves that surprised you about how video games developed? Well, in in effect, what you're asking me is... uh, I mean, how surprised was I at how the whole electronics industry developed? I mean, one, they were totally, uh, totally integrated. I mean, we went from discrete transistors to ICs, from ICs to early state machines, from state machines to microprocessors, or microprocessors, the bigger microprocessors, there's still more memory. Now, some of the things I skipped up here is I'd built, uh, uh, semi- I'd built ma- memories. It doesn't happen to be up there, memories out of uh, out uh, of printed circuit boards, where the interface was uh, a memory storage area, where you could store either capacitively or or uh, in uh, or inductively, uh, at the very time when the first semiconductor memories uh, were beginning to show up, I mean it's just inconceivable unless you put your mind to it, to crank your 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 history backwards in your mind, to r- visualize. The stages of development have taken place in the last ten years. When you look at all the history of humanity, yeah, there's this almost straight line in the geometric curve over the first 20,000 years. And then the Industrial Revolution comes along, and now we're at the point of inflection in the early 1900s. Yeah? And now we're on that straight curve right up towards 70, and things are moving at a fantastic rate. Think about how we built things back then. There was one engineer, one tech, doing a whole project. Today, the guys have to specialize on some limited function because it's so complex that they can't handle two or three. Does that answer your question? Sort of?
3: Hi. Um, Hi. It's amazing. This is it's pretty amazing. magical.
2: Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it's, but it just happens, <laughs> it right? Just,
0: you, your just life out, you be amazing, too, and you know? amazing and it's great. Amazing things happen every day of the week. <laughs> I guess nobody amazing is today. In the today's Wall Street Journal, is an announcement of the latest Kindle. Uh, the new Kindle is bigger, yeah, taller, bigger, and has additional capabilities. I guess it has better graphics, so it can do a better job on uh, textbooks. To me, that ain't the Kindle I want. Anybody who wants to hear about the Kindle I want, uh, come and see me. Uh, which. <laughs> Uh, and so now if you want to find me for any reason, if you have any bright ideas, uh, or if you want input on ideas that never went anywhere, uh, you can find me. I'm rhbair at comcast.net, uh, and uh, uh, I'm You well, Lots of stuff up that there. That pretty much answers yeah. my
3: question, which was
2: <laughs>
0: was where where where
3: do you want it to go from here? I'm sorry. Where do you see it or would like? to see it go from here?
0: Well, some of the things that are happening now are exactly where I think we ought to be going. In 89 and 90, I showed to Konami the whole nine yards of video game recognizing where you are in the room and reacting to you and uh, shooting at the screen where the screen knows where you are, ducking behind the furniture so you can't see you. And guess what? They ripped me off on a the, on the helmet that had a, uh, a, an optical sight in it. And, what can I do soon?" Um, and here is the we, right, in the last three years, doing all those things, and I just got a demonstration a earlier of something else that's we-related, it's wonderful. Right, And another one of the things I, I, uh, I've been pushing for the longest time is 3D stereo. Uh, my wedding pictures were done in, in 3D uh, with a stereo realist. I have about 3,000 stereo realist pictures that they uh, had depict my entire married life and the kids growing up. And I'm in the process of scanning them all now, which is one hell of a hellacious job. Uh, the biggest job being identifying the picture because my wife didn't title most of them. Okay. And now I have to reconstruct towards this 8, it was towards 1972 or 1973, it's one hell of a job. Uh, and anyway, uh, 3D, of course, as most of you know, has come along fast. I love going to 3D movies with my big IMAX screen. and uh, uh, if uh, the industry ever gets together, which will probably take another two or three years on um, the, the system um, uh, just everything is going to be in 3 d and those of you involved in uh, in video game production know that uh, quite a few video games are, are just like movies have already been made in 3 d can be played optionally either, either, either way uh, but um, uh, So I'm off that, um, I was on that soapbox for several years, but it's been taken out by the whole industry now, so I can get off. But 3D, you ask me what's in the future, 3D is definitely in the future. What else? More creative interfaces. Uh, One of the last things I did, um, inventions, that went to contract uh, with uh, Logitech uh, was a replacement for the DDR mat, mat, the floor mat. Uh, This is the gadget, uh, there was no floor mat. it, uh, I don't know whom I told it to, there were some other people here earlier. Uh, it went, uh, uh, I think they spent uh, Logitech spent probably a million bucks on going all the way to prototype. But they forgot to romance the, the customer who is uh, uh, who, who's a DDR uh, uh, major producer, come on, Konami. Uh, uh, the customer was Konami, Konami only and they didn't pr- romance uh, management at a high enough level, and they decided not to go forward. So they uh, bought us out uh, of our license, which I didn't really sweat too much because it was a six substantial fig- six-figure uh, buyout, and there were only three of us sharing the six-figure, so <laughs> I got lucky that year. Uh, yeah. that, <laughs> that came in, uh, yeah, uh, I got a, uh, Japanese a Sony award at the IEEE Triple that produced a five-digit check, and I'm still collecting on talking tools from Hasbro Tonka that I designed about five years ago. That are mostly in distribution in Europe and South America. they're tools like hammers and saws that speak when for little kiddies. So there we are. What, Any other question? What's your favorite? What's your favorite game now? And h- how did you imagine this? I don't play games. Oh. Me. Why would? I? First of all, my eyes don't work well. I have a problem. My reactions are much too slow. The only time I play games is when my grandkids come and schlepp along their they the Wii or something, and they make me play some game. I can never play those damn games. <laughs> my my too fast. I try to f- steer those cars, and I'm always hitting the walls, and I forget it. <laughs> That's for younger guys. So, uh, yeah, I'm not averse to working the territory. I still have some concepts for input devices, but um, I uh, currently have no one supporting me because all the guys who worked with me over the years they all got independently uh, in, independently into practice and they all got their own businesses and one of them is uh, uh, in court all the time as an expert witness and he makes a fortune of money he charges 250 350 bucks an hour you know uh, and I got him started uh, yeah uh, another guy who worked with me on the uh, uh, the guy who started with me in, in, Sanders will work with me on things like talking tools. Well, he's in business for himself and he also supports lawyers, but he's currently building the 15th electronic teapot, uh, no, coffee maker, excuse me, coffee maker for some company out on 128, Well, he's basically taken over engineering because he's so much better than everybody else in there, both in software and mechanical engineering and in hardware that he's practically running the place now. So I lost all my support people, and support meaning uh, uh, anything but the most primitive programming. Yeah, I can program pickaxe, chips, uh, but that's about it, you know. uh, it's, That's for younger guys, guys one-third my age. So if anybody here really wants to do something creative, creative and needs some input, and has the time, who the hell's got time here? Uh, uh, you wanna ring my bell? I, I'll listen to you. <laughs> Worst, I'll say no.
2: Huh? I have a uh, uh, just a question about uh, uh, the early day, uh, days when you were doing a lot of your development, did you have uh, interactions with early stages of computing? Did you have any sort of exchanges with people who were working on you know, the development of early prototypes of computers and things of that sort as you worked on yes. your things?
0: Yes, after Odyssey, I worked with the engineers for the next two or three miles. Then, since they weren't very cooperative, I switched uh, gears, I went to Coleco. Coleco into the business, the Telstar game, which was was their first game, based on the AY38500 chip that I helped promote. It was designed by General Instrument in in Scotland. Uh, I helped them build the first machine. I got them out of trouble when they were in trouble with the FCC. Uh, They couldn't pass uh, uh, the acceptance test. Got them out of trouble. and made them sign the license. Uh, Then I got a contract from Coleco to, to design parts of the next three models, next-three-year models. Here we are, <laughs> military trollings company, and I'm setting guys aside to build video games. Uh, then I supported uh, Magnavox, on building the Odyssey 2. In fact, the Odyssey 2 would have died a death by edict uh, if I hadn't gotten in the act because management suddenly decided, we don't want to be in this business. And I heard about it and I took an airplane to Tennessee where the factory was and I sat around the conference table. I had just come off successful run with Coleco. I turned them around we flew back in the company airplane to Fort Wayne, and the engineers had already draped the black drape crape all over the the door frames and on the windows they were on the phone trying to get themselves new jobs and, and Odyssey 2 program was turned on again and I was uh, I wheeled out of them um, a uh, development system we produced a couple of cartridges for this but that was the end. I never did anything after that except back in the 90s again, but I got into this business out of uh, in, interfaces to, the, uh, uh, to, uh, to existing games. That was a Nintendo period, middle 80s. We, for example, we took the, the, uh, that foot pad that was, for uh, uh, which you could play different games. We put electronics into it that allowed you to play every game with your feet instead of your hands. And there were two modes. Either you did it by sitting down, which was one mode, or you stood up, which was entirely different. And that played like gangbusters, and Konami didn't take it. And we had this interactive gun business where the screen knew where, I, where the player was in the room. And, they, and I had this helmet with a gun sight, and they ripped me off on that, the product came out. So that was another period when I got involved, and then I walked away from it all. And then more recently I yeah, did this thing for, uh, for, for uh, 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 Konami, which never went anywhere. It was a lot of fun. Made a lot of money for two weeks of work, basically. I built the prototype. from scratch in about two weeks and worked. Um, when
1: the Odyssey uh, was available for sale, what um, you showed us w- one of the television ads. W- what 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 other means uh, were they used uh, to um, at, at, at a time to market uh, consumer electronics? Were they uh,
3: trade shows? Well
0: um, if you remember the, the, the commercial, but it went by so fast, you probably didn't remember. You saw the, uh, one of the users plug in a card. Uh, the Odyssey was plug in card programmable. There was nothing on the cards except interconnections that interconnected the logic inside the box. So the Odyssey played ping pong, it played uh, handball, which to me was always a better game. Where the wall moved over to the side, they played off the wall back, took turns. Handball, volleyball, side view of a volleyball field. Uh, a rifle shooting game, a chase game, and a couple of other games with uh, overlays, Uh, and each one of these required a different cartridge. For each one of them there was a different overlay, and the overlays came in a couple of different sizes so that they would fit uh, small sets or large sets. So this thing was plug-in programmable. The next plug-in programmable game was what? The Fairchild F8 which had a processor in it, and everybody looked at that cartridge, which was monstrous, like an 8-track cartridge, if you remember those things, and the you know, envisioned uh, you know, 8-track system in there. When it, what was in there was obviously was, uh, uh, it was semiconductor memory. Uh, but, um,
1: uh, I, w- I was wondering if there were like trade shows at a time uh, that um, all, were all, 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 was all of the sales like, direct to, place, to places like uh, the,
0: Sears. Uh, the, tra- the trade show for video game business was restricted to arcade games. Mm-hmm. It was the MOA show, Music Operators of America show, took place in Chicago every April, I think. I went to all of them, made lots of notes, gave the notes to the lawyers, it took them three years to get off their duff until there was enough volume out there and then we laid the first lawsuit on Atari and Atari had just come off. do I have the time or do you guys have to leave uh, Just interrupt me when you need to go Atari had Atari had uh, uh, built a, uh, a first home game first home pound game, and they got lucky uh, Nolan went to uh, to uh, uh CS Roebuck in Chicago where he had flunked twice before when he tried to sell him something. And the guy he talked to said, you don't belong here, you belong with a sports guy. He went to demonstrate to the sports guy. He said, the sports guy said, this is fantastic, I want 250,000 pieces by Christmas. Okay. So here we are, this is 75, in that 76, and you can believe that the lawyers got, and Magnavox finally got off their ass and started spending money on going after people. The first people to go after was Atari. Uh, and Nolan and I met on the courtroom steps, the federal court in Chicago, and he had his lawyer with him. I don't think it was his lawyer, I think it was uh, the, uh, uh, the Sears lawyer. Right? Uh, and uh, our lawyers and his lawyer settled before they went to court. So he was not part of the first suit, which was against uh, Bally, Bally Midway, Seberg, all arcade manufacturers, uh, several others. But, uh, uh, Atari got an upfront up license for quite a reasonable sum of money, uh, which uh, they did because it even the playing field for them. They got in at a low rate. Everybody else in the future, if a, if a patent stuck and they were pretty sure our patents would stick, everybody else would have to pay a substantially greater uh, rate to be in that business. So they had, had one, uh, you know, one leg up on the competition. That's why they went to, went to license. And from then on out, I spent the next five, in fact, more than 10 years off and on in court, defending the patents in Chicago, in San Francisco, in Ottawa, all over the in London, all over the place. We won every one of those cases. Everything went to a Court of Appeals. We won every one of the Court of Appeals sessions and made a ton of money. Made so much money that I could do all the stuff I did, take the company into interactive video, uh, do a whole lot of other stuff that had. Uh, I would have never been able to do in the company if there hadn't been this faucet on the wall of money coming out. <laughs> so my name was up in neon signs on the corporate tower. I could do anything I wanted. And I did. I went to Marvin Glass and became the outside electronics designer while I was still at Sanders. So I was getting two paychecks. Two years later, I'm also. Yeah, the outside electronics capability for Hallmark Cards. I build the first talking cards and a bunch of Christmas ornaments. and another check comes in every month. <laughs> I, know, I made three of them. Uh, did anybody give a care? No. Yeah. As long as I did what they wanted, yeah, they paid up. It's been exciting.
2: Uh, during the, the spot, <laughs> the Odyssey spot, the first one, yeah. there was a, a scene when you, uh, they mentioned education. How was the vision while you we were developing the, the video games and the, the content for that? What was the vision you had for education, if you had any, or the future of that nowadays?
0: Well, quite a few people bought Odysseys uh, to use in nursery schools or preschools. And uh, for mentally disabled people, uh, there was quite a bit of attention paid to that early on. So uh, using video games uh, for those purposes, uh, uh, started with the Odyssey way back when, and uh, yeah, I thought of those things too, except that I knew there were very small markets, and that sure it wasn't something I wanted to go after.
2: Uh, one question on your uh, patent uh, lawsuits and so forth: What was the biggest one? The biggest lawsuit you had? Uh, Maybe you don't have time to, (laughs) (laughs) it's gonna take uh, too long. And who are are the players? I mean, how did these uh, lawsuits, uh, how did these patent uh, trials get started? Uh, Who were the the people involved? Well, let me draw you a picture. The first lawsuit
0: against Atari, which we settled out of court, was against uh, major arcade manufacturers, right? They had six or seven or eight lawyers in the courtroom. There were three on our side, Uh, and in front of me, I was on stand sometimes for an entire week. Half the time I turned to my right, talked to the judge up there. The first judge we had was a guy in his 40, late 40s. He He'd just come out of private practice, been on the bench for about two years. Extremely smart guy, ex-football player. Uh, very nice, very personable. He turned to me and, you know, and I talked to him half the time uh, and instead of responding to the lawyers. In front of me was ten linear feet of documents, plus a brown box sitting there. When on demand to play uh, things like a ping pong game, and the lawyers all but stood on their head to try, on their head to try, opposition lawyers to try and show that what we did was different than what they did. And yeah, you when know, they T squad L, big fat boards in their in their uh, arcade games, and the judge wouldn't buy it because basically, what we were fighting about was the concept of playing ga- games on the home television set. And when we opened up the back of, uh, of an arcade game that was brought into court, uh, the judge came down from the bench, you're looking back, and there's a <laughs> standard television set, with the front-end disabled, you know, to get into the first video. Because, yeah. uh, all you had to do was take one look and say, same thing. You know? <laughs> 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 but the point was that we had these claims that specifically pointed to the interaction between machine control and manual control symbology on the screen, and the results of the interaction, yeah, with the resultant interaction uh, of the, yeah, like a motion or bounce off or disappearance of uh, the machine-controlled symbol, and that covered everything through the late uh, late uh, 70s because all the games then were uh, pong games and derivatives, uh, uh, yeah, the tank games, and uh, they were all they all had the same basic. Uh, Constituent parts. So uh, they're, they're. Uh, now, um, I, I'm, uh, you asked what went on. For weeks, the opposition tries to convince the uh, uh, the, the judge that what we had is analog circuitry, yeah, and they have the digital circuitry, T square L. What the hell difference that make? I never knew. The judge found it never made any difference. Yeah? But they harped and harped on that. As a matter of fact, there is no analog circuitry in the brown box, except for the modulator and the RF channel three, channel four oscillator that's in there. That's it. The rest of it is pulse circuitry and digital logic. What the heck would you call a flip-flop that moves the ball from left to right? It's a digital circuit. What would you call diode logic, diode and gates? Digital circuits. To this day, Nolan Bush and can't understand that and keeps referring to the Odyssey as an analog machine. <laughs> Enough said. And that one. So you asked me what was the major major one more, one more answer to your question. What was the major lawsuit? Major lawsuit was against Mattel. Mattel first negotiated, then decided to go to court. They lost. Uh, we went. To, they went to appeals. They lost. Then finally settled for twelve million bucks, which today would be something like twenty-five million bucks, which is really peanuts in terms of today's today's uh, uh, dollars. But it was big money then. Uh, 80, what? 87, 88. In television, late 80s. Remember, at the same time as television, it was ColecoVision, uh, and uh, several advanced models of the, of the Atari 2600, uh, which never really made it, uh, and uh, the Odyssey 2. That same period, five years be- before, uh, just before uh, video games went into a hiatus and disappeared for five years and came back courtesy of the Nintendo game. There was another question somewhere.
3: Thanks so much for entertaining all these questions. Yeah. So Something I liked a lot in, in your work is your commitment to the television and bringing new functionality to this common device. And it, it seems like, in a way, some of the things that you hoped would happen were realized with the internet. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about things that you've done with the web and how it does or doesn't match with what your expectations might have been?
0: Well, I think pretty much everything I foresaw has happened. Of course, a whole lot of things have happened that uh, I would have never imagined uh, were saleable out there. But worldwide, uh, uh, wrestling is saleable, right? Uh, if you can sell that, you can sell video games where you kill people by the yard and have blood flowing all over the screen. <laughs> Could I have imagined something like that? Got to be kidding, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, it takes all kinds of people to make a world and all sorts of entertainments to make them happy. So a lot of that stuff I didn't foresee. But as we go through it, I think I try to demonstrate uh, interacting with the screen like the Wii does. I did it in the nineties, you know. shooting at the screen. I did in the sixties. Uh, <coughs> we built uh, we built some really good games that we never sell to anybody. We had an early uh, hockey game where the, uh, uh, the play, where the puck was responsive to the uh, to interaction, where the, the puck moved uh, as a derivative of the, of the motion of the, of the paddle, like the EDT. You know? uh, and uh, uh, it was an unbelievable game. We played that on the six-foot diameter clause projection system down in my basement and at various exhibits and we converted to a four-handed game with two guys being the goalies, two guys the players. It was the greatest game, yeah. And that was in the, still in the early 70s. Yeah. Well, I think we
2: should let,
0: let, let us Yeah, I think are you are to give me yourself. a rest.